I'd ask you to turn back in your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 20. And I'd like you to look at this perhaps uh, through some fresh eyes. There is a demonstration of leadership in this passage of Scripture that I think is appropriate for every one of us to try to emulate. Now, when you and I think about leadership, there are probably different ideas that come to our mind, uh, primarily because we have been inundated with seminars, instruction, um, publications, all telling us how to be leaders. And uh, in our public school system, you, you hear teachers often talking about preparing young people to become leaders. Uh, when you go into industry, one of the things that is addressed frequently is how to develop leaders within the corporation. And uh, sometimes even, well, obviously in the political realm, you're introduced to the idea of what makes a good leader. And there are qualities that begin to rise that you look at and say, well, these are real leadership qualities. Sadly, that concept that is being taught by the world has been embraced in a lot of churches. There are pastors today who don't want to be called pastors. They want to be called CEOs. That's horrible. That is an awful concept. We are not the heads of some big corporation. We are shepherds that are here to feed and help protect and to encourage the flock, not a CEO of some corporation. Well, when you think about what the world identifies as leadership today, it's often in contradistinction to what the scriptures teach. You, you have this idea that to be a leader, you have to have a very forceful personality. You have to be an individual who is a take charge and grab the bull by the horns type of an individual. You have to be a person who can sit in a back room and with the feeble brain that you have, come up with some ideas that you tell other people to do and they carry out your plan and if it doesn't work, you can blame them for not following through the way they should. And that's often what leadership is. I'd like you to reconsider the definition of leadership. And I think this would follow a biblical pattern. Godly leadership is by example, not by decree. A fellow by the name of Thomas Morell made this statement. The first great gift we can bestow on others is a good example. A second principle, godly leadership is by influence of character, not coercion. If you want to see that violated, all you have to do is pick up your newspaper. Look at these leaders of corporations and the way they've absconded with millions of dollars. Look at the head of the IMF who has the morals of a mule. You, you look at, at these people who are in positions of leadership because they've got all these great qualities. What they don't have is character. A third concept. Godly leadership is by service, not dictatorship. Benjamin Franklin made this statement. Well done is better than well said. Some great concepts there in what makes a, a true leader. Now, some of you might be sitting there thinking, well, Pastor, you're really not talking to me this morning because I have no aspirations to be a leader. I have no desire. You know, part of the, the problem with leadership is that along with leadership comes accountability and responsibility. 
And so sometimes people shy away from the realm of what we would call leadership. But I would suggest to you that every person in this auditorium is a leader in some respect. You may not be a leader in a corporation, but you may be a leader in that corporation. You may be a leader here in the church. You may be a leader within your own home. You may be a leader in your neighborhood. There are areas of influence that you will have upon other people's lives that will demonstrate you're leading the way. You're showing the direction for how things should go. And when you consider that, you've got to ask yourself the question, well, then what should I be like? What kind of characteristics should there be in my life that would make me a godly leader if that mantle falls upon my shoulders? And folks, it does. Every one of you has a realm of leadership in which you are responsible. So what then becomes the pattern? And one of the interesting things in Scripture is we're not left wondering about that very, very long because Paul himself addresses the issue of following the lead of someone else. There are two passages I just want to make reference to very quickly. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, Paul made a very short statement here. Brethren, join in following my example. And note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. There's leadership. Follow the pattern of what I do. Follow the pattern of the way I live. He goes on to say in Philippians chapter 4, the, the next chapter, verses 8 and 9. And this is such a beautiful passage. It has, it has a, a, a challenge that we will spend our lives trying to lay hold of. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, Whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Isn't that a challenge? The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. What an incredible statement that the Apostle Paul is making. He's saying, the things that you've seen in me, you, you've looked at my life. You have heard things about me. You have experienced my interaction with you. You've watched the direction of my life. You do the same thing. Could you say that? Could I say that? This, this bar is awfully high, isn't it? This is a very, very high standard. So how do we get our thinking into line with being the leaders that God intends for us to be? Not necessarily being powerful in our personalities. Not necessarily having a huge realm of influence. But wherever the realm of leadership resides upon our shoulders, these are the characteristics that should be there. And you begin by looking at the way the Apostle Paul acted when he was in Ephesus and when he left. As we go back to Acts chapter 20 and you look at the first verse, what you see is this. After the uproar had ceased, okay, you, you've got to ask yourself this question. What preceded this statement? 
after the uproar ceased. If you were with us last week, or if you've been reading through this portion of the word recently, you know that there had been a riot in the city of Ephesus. And the reason was that Demetrius, the silversmith, saw his occupation being challenged by the influence of the Apostle Paul spreading the gospel, showing others how they could come to know Christ as their Savior. And when people came to know Christ, their lives changed. They didn't go the same way they had been going before. So Demetrius realized this is going to destroy our our occupation. He got his guild of silversmiths together. They stirred the crowd up. Thousands of people took two followers of the way into their theater and there presented these people before this mob of individuals who are crying out to their goddess Diana. A Jew stepped forward to defend the Jewish position and he too was met with rejection until the clerk of the city stepped in front of the people and basically told them this. If you don't quiet down and settle this mob issue, we are in danger of being examined by the Roman authorities and the day may come the legions will be moving into our city and we're going to pay a high price for this. We'd better settle down. And that calmed the crowd. But the tensions were still high. So here's what we see Paul doing. He waits until after this whole uproar had ceased. And then he called the disciples to himself. Take note. Here's what a leader does. He cares for his fellow laborers. Look at how Paul handled this situation. You remember the the people that were believers in Christ, the followers of the way, they did not let Paul go into the theater. Paul wanted to go in. He wanted to defend the, the cause of Christ. Well, there were those who were with him, disciples who were with him, and then there were other leaders in the city who had become believers who sent word and said, tell Paul not to go in there. So he didn't. He made the right choice. He didn't go into the theater, but... He didn't flee the city. He waited until the uproar had ceased and now he's looking at those who are his fellow laborers. And he realizes that the the time of danger is past. He meets with them. He brings them words of encouragement as we're going to see. And then he departs from the city. That's a good leader. Somebody who cares for his fellow laborers. It's a person that says, your well-being is just as important to me as my own. Maybe it is even more important to me than my own well-being. Which means there are times I might have to make sacrifices in order for the well-being of my fellow workers. Can you see that developing in a church environment? Wouldn't that be a great thing if everyone looked at the situation and said, you know what, I really want to stand with you and I want to, I want to care for your needs. And then take it into the workplace and take it into industry where the, the leaders of industry are actually looking at the fellow laborers and saying to them, you're my responsibility. I'm going to do everything I can to take care of you. Some of you have probably been on the short end of a philosophy that's different than that. And because the bottom line wasn't quite as brilliant as it could have been, you lost a job. Because the people over you, the leaders, did not have upon their heart the care for you. 
That is a, a quality that seems to be missing in so much of our culture today. I don't really care about the other person. Instead, all I care about is the bottom line. That's not a good leader. Paul says, I care about those people that are working with me. And then he goes on, and as he proceeds further, we read this. He embraced them, and then he departed to go to Macedonia. Now, when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece. Here's what a leader does. He encourages those he leads. He behaves in a manner toward the individuals over whom he has responsibility or over whom she has responsibility, and they bring words of encouragement. Now, when we read about the Apostle Paul encouraging believers, there are many different facets that are involved in that. One of the facets involves maintaining the integrity of the one whom Paul was worshiping. So whenever he would encourage people, it wouldn't be divorced from the concept of their fidelity to Christ. He would rehearse before those whom he was now speaking and encouraging, and he would remind them about what they have in Christ. Is there any greater encouragement than knowing what we have in Christ? I can't think of any. I can't think of anything that would be greater to know than that the creator of the universe has made a judicial decree based upon the sacrifice of his son on the cross of Calvary that declares me completely free and innocent of all charges of sin against me. I am justified. The judge says, not guilty. There is nothing greater than that. I can't think of anything greater than knowing that the Spirit of God has taken up residence within me and He instructs me and He guides my path as He takes the Word of God and appropriates the truths of that Word to my thinking. Nothing greater than knowing that when I violate the the standards of my God, the Spirit of God is grieved by those that violation, and I feel his grief so that I don't continue on in my sin, but I deal with it. We use the terminology, I'm convicted about my sin. Probably not the proper terminology, because the Spirit of God convicts unsaved people of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. But dwelling within the believer, he is grieved when we sin, and therefore we we sense that grief because this one within us has been grieved, and then we are able to respond and say, Oh, Lord, what I said to that person, that was that was sin. I agree with you that that was sin. And the Lord says, I promise to forgive you. As your Father, I promise to forgive you and restore fellowship because you have agreed with me about your sin. That is great encouragement. Um, In spite of, what was the guy's name, Camp? Camping? Harold Camping. In spite of his nonsensical comments, I do have the hope of Christ's return. Maybe today. Um, but I'm not saying that for sure. <laughs> okay. Maybe today, but I don't know for sure. 
but I can live knowing that he's going to come. And you know what? It does, it does appear that it could be any time now, but I felt that way many, many years ago when I was young. And today, that hope has not dwindled at all. We are impatient, but the Lord isn't. His timing is absolutely perfect. And nobody is going to know when it's going to happen, but whenever it is, it's going to be at exactly the right moment, just as it was in the coming of Christ who when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them who were under the law. By the way, there's another blessing that we have in Christ. I am purchased out of the slave market of sin, so I do not have to yield myself to the temptations that come my way. The Lord has given me my defense. He's given me armor to put on. He's given me the Holy Spirit to guide my paths. He has given me a will that can reject the world and say, I know this world is passing away. And so I'm going to set my affection on things above, not on things here on the earth. Paul would begin to encourage his people with that. But then he would talk to them about the care that the Lord gives them. These things are are beyond our comprehension. But do you know that at this very moment, the Lord is intimately concerned with every one of us individually within this room. He's not caring about us. He's caring about us. Do you see the difference? Do you understand how he's looking and he says, you know what, I know what the need of your heart is. I know what the need of your life is. I've allowed that need to come into your life because I am working a work in you that is designed for the purpose of making you more and more like my son. You are being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And that is happening right now. And then... That encouragement also includes some exhortation, which Paul is always involved in. He talks to them about the blessings they have in Christ. He talks to them about the blessings that they personally are enjoying. He talks to them about the things that they now need to do. And following Christ is not a passive sit back, let go and let God. It is an aggressive, active, forward-moving commitment of life. And so he exhorts these believers, to continue their testimony for Christ. And by the way, they apparently do a fairly good job of it because this city is turned upside down for the cause of Christ. See, Paul was a good leader. He cared for his fellow laborers. He encouraged those over whom he had responsibility and for whom he had to lead. And then another element begins to emerge. A third, where he cares for those who are in need. And I want you to look at this very carefully because you don't see this just as we read the text, but you'll be able to put pieces together and then you'll understand. Look at what it says in verse 3. It says, uh, uh, he came to Greece at the end of verse 2 and stayed three months. And when the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria... He decided to return through Macedonia. Okay, now now put this in mind. You all, do you all have a mental picture of where Greece is geographically? 
you, you can imagine that, okay? So he's going down into Greece. Here's Greece. Here are all the little Greek islands. Over here is what is present-day Turkey. This is, this is Ephesus. He left there. He came down to Greece. He was here for three months. Now it's time to go. But he gets word about something. There are Jews who are going to kill him. And instead of presuming upon the Lord to protect him, he does what is reasonable for an individual. He responds in such a way that instead of sailing from Greece over to Troas from here, he returns instead by going up through Macedonia. And he avoids those who are setting a trap for him down here. Am I in front of the map for you guys? He moves past, he, he, he avoids these people who have set this trap by going up into Macedonia. But he has in mind one destination. He is going to get to Jerusalem. And there's a reason why. Look at these people who are with him. And Sopater of Berea accompanied him to Asia. Also Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians and Gaius of Derby and Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. These men going ahead waited for us at Troas. Who are these guys? Who, why are they traveling with Paul? Why is he in such a big entourage? And the reason comes to us by the study of other portions of scripture. What was going on in Jerusalem at the time? There was a great deal of persecution that had broken out against the believers in Jerusalem. As a result of that, their material possessions had been confiscated. They had lost their means of earning an income because they would be fired if they were identified as those who were followers of Christ. They were being ridiculed by the leadership in the city. They were being... Uh, ostracized by the neighborhoods in which they lived. They were being rejected by family members and they were living in absolute poverty. So what happened? The Gentile churches that existed in Asia and in Macedonia and in these areas where the Apostle Paul had done evangelism began to receive an offering and they took that offering for the specific purpose of sending responsible, trustworthy individuals down to Jerusalem to bring money to relieve the suffering of the, the believers in the city of Jerusalem. Listen to what Paul wrote about here in Romans chapter 15, where he identifies this situation. Beginning at verse 25. But now I am going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. For it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. It pleased them indeed, and they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. Therefore, when I have performed this and have sealed to them this fruit, I shall go by way of you to Spain. Paul is seeing to it that that money that had been given for the poor in Jerusalem is going to make its way safely and these guys are taking the cash and they're going to see to it that it gets down to the poor in Jerusalem. He is helping those in need. A good leader does that. He looks at the needs of his people and he says, I'll come to their aid. 
I'll do what's necessary to be of help to them. There were several things that were accomplished through this. The Gentile believers who collected this offering expressed by their giving their understanding of the rich heritage they had from the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. See, these were, these were the Gentiles who sent over to Jerusalem the Jewish believers, people who had been raised under the law and understood the, the prophets. They had now become believers in Christ. And there was this rich understanding and this rich heritage. And now these Gentiles that had come to Christ in Macedonia and Achaia, they're sending a gift and it's saying to those Jewish believers, we understand what we have in you. We understand the importance of you. And it said to the Jewish believers in the city of Jerusalem, we know that the truth of the gospel now has reached you. And you are responding appropriately to the truth that is found in the person of Christ. You know, there's a neat principle here. And it's one that I really am grateful for. It is the recognition that sometimes the older people in a church are the rich heritage for which others enjoy the benefit of their ministry and of their preparation. Take a look at our church. Why are we even here today? Well, there are a number of ways that you could answer that question, but one of the ways is this. There were people in years gone by who faithfully committed themselves to the cause of Christ made sacrifices and saw to it that Grace Baptist Church was not only established, but that it continued on as an effective ministry for the glory of Christ. And we've got some older folks in this congregation who are responsible. And we honor them. And we recognize their importance. But then we also recognize that that impact has now reached a whole new generation of people. Sometimes the specifics of their lives don't always line up, but the truth of what they have in Christ perfectly melds together. We know the Savior, and we're going to be the next generation to live for Him. And so there are young people in our congregation to whom we owe not only the gospel, but an example of life, and to show them the way of righteousness, and the two come together. Paul understood that. And he cared for him. He was reliable. I want you to take a note of what what follows. It says, uh, but we sailed, in verse 6, we sailed away from Philippi. In other words, they went all the way up into Macedonia. Now they're up at the city of Philippi, right by the coast of the uh, uh, Aegean Sea. Okay, the Adriatic is on the other side. This is the Aegean Sea. He's on the the coast there in Philippi, and the days of unleavened bread in uh, and in five days joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. Paul said, "You guys go over there. They're not trying to kill you. They're trying to kill me. I'm going to go up this way, and I will meet you in Troas." And so he sailed from Philippi. Now, if you look at the map, it's not that far from Philippi to Troas. So there must have been some bad weather along the way because it took them five days to cross this relatively short 
body of water. But he did come. And in spite of whatever it was that was holding him back and resisting him, Paul kept his word. He said, I am going to meet you there. And he does. That is a characteristic of a leader. What he says, he does. If he says, I am going to do this, he does it. If he says, I'm going to be here, he is there. That's what leaders do. They're reliable. As you go on, you'll notice what happens when he gets there. It says in verse 7, Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them. I'm going to stop at that point because now what we have is an understanding of the spiritual mindedness of the Apostle Paul. It was the first day of the week. What day is that? That's Sunday. The first day of the week is Sunday. Paul meets with the believers on Sunday. Why? To break bread. But the breaking of bread was just part of the fellowship dimension that this body believed, uh, that this body in, uh, enjoyed together. They, they understood the realities of what they had in Christ. They understood that the first day of the week was the day in which Christ rose from the dead. It was the day that was established by the disciples as the day the body of believers would come together. There was never a redeclaration of the covenant that God made with Israel concerning the Sabbath, actually with Moses. Prior to Moses, there was no law to keep the Sabbath. But when that was introduced, it was part of the covenant sign between God and the people of Israel. It was never reiterated for the church. It was never practiced by the early church. It was never demonstrated to be a special day only the first day of the week. And so when you are confronted by those who believe that we have broken the Sabbath, it's not part of our relationship with the Lord. That was for Israel. When do we meet? We meet on the first day of the week. And we meet for a variety of reasons. We, we meet for the purpose of fellowship. We meet for the purpose of using our spiritual gifts. We, use for the, we, we meet for the purpose of being instructed and of encouraging one another. There are a whole variety of reasons for which we gather on this day. And that's what this leader, the Apostle Paul, was demonstrating to his people. He showed them the dimension of his spiritual mind. How he thought, this is the day that's important. And this is the day that we gather together and that we meet. His own devotion to the Lord was really primary in his thinking. It's what he had as a primary goal and, and perspective for others. And then, of course, he gave this example to follow. But now... Now we get to my favorite part. If you follow along as you come to the end of verse 7, he spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together. And in the window sat a certain young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep. And as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Listen, we joke about length of services and stuff like that, but let me just say this. 
Paul was absolutely consumed with the desire to proclaim truth. That doesn't really hit us all that hard, does it? Hit these people. Their whole lives have been spent listening to lies. They had spent their lives listening to false teachers. And now the Apostle Paul comes, and he's in the city of Troas, and he's teaching them the truth. And he speaks until midnight. Now, there are a couple words that change in here that just kind of give us a little bit of an idea. Let me tell you on, on two different accounts what they are. The first, if you notice in the end of verse 7, it says, the next day he spoke to them. That word for spoke means that he was discoursing. He was giving what we would call a sermon. He was declaring the truths concerning Christ and concerning what we have in Christ and concerning the way we're supposed to live. But if you drop down to verse 11, it uses the word talked, at least in the New King James translation. It uses the word talked, and that is, that's a little different idea. It's the idea that now he is interacting with them. It's a more informal type thing. Up until midnight, he was preaching to them. But from midnight... Until sunrise, they sat together in a group and they discussed what Christ had done and how the implications of that reach into a person's life. So there was a change in approach. There was the formal preaching and there was the informal discussing. For Eutychus, there are two different words that are used as well, and or two different phrases. Notice where it says, um, uh, verse 9, in... And in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep. That means he was in the process of going to sleep. Now, as I watch out over the congregation, even this morning, I have watched some in this process. All right, there is that. The, and, and isn't it awful? You sit there and it's like, oh... I can't do this. He's going to see me and then he'll say something about me and and he'll call my name. Won't I? No, I, I better not say. <laughs> In fact, right now I can't even look at the people who are doing that because they're going to know I saw them. And I saw at least two or three of you um, in this process of going to sleep. But then it says this. As that verse goes on, it says, who was sinking into a deep sleep, and then it says, he was overcome by sleep. It's not a battle anymore. And he is out cold, or even worse. This, people can think you're praying. This, <laughs> what are you waiting for, showers of blessing? I, I don't know. But once you go out, you're gone. Well, you know what? It's interesting that the Lord gives us that picture because this is the way people respond. I mean, if you're, if you're tired and you, you're going to sleep, you, you're fighting it. Don't, don't you find yourself sometimes fighting it? You just say, oh, Lord, please, let this end soon. I can't take this anymore. <laughs> and, and here's this poor guy, Eutychus, and he's at the top of this building. Now, you can imagine the implications of this. All these uh, lamps are burning. 
So oxygen is being taken out of the air. He's sitting up on the third floor and he's kind of sitting in the window and he's listening to Paul. But all this body heat from these people are coming up. The oxygen is being consumed by the lamps. It's hot up there. And he fights and he fights. And then, and when that moment of relaxation comes, where the fight is over and he has now slipped into this deep sleep. By the way, the neat part about that kind of sleep is when you wake up, 20 minutes went by, you didn't even know. It's just, it's such a pleasant thing. It's just, ah, okay, now I'm refreshed and ready to go. He wasn't refreshed. His body became limp and he fell out of the window and he died. Paul went down to him placed his body on him and embraced him in his arms and said, he still has his life in him. Don't despair. I don't know what happened at this moment. I mean, this leaves us open to some real speculation. Did, Did Eutychus move? Did he do something at this point to show that he has now returned to life? I don't know. It may be that he did not really respond until daybreak. We're not told exactly what happened. But here's what did happen with the people that were there. They believed what Paul said. Don't be troubled. He's still alive. And then Paul went right back to talking to the people. He preached until midnight. Now, folks, today, and and all kidding aside, all kidding aside, Today, it is not uncommon to hear people say, oh, I love our pastor. He only preaches 10 minutes. I'm serious. Um, We have the best pastor. She only speaks 15 minutes. Um, I asked you all to read a book. I asked you all to read Radical. You still need to if you haven't. I just want to read to you something out of this book. The writer, David Platt, um, took a trip to China. Or, I'm sorry, not China. It's just identified as the East. And something happened here that, to me, really rings a bell. Travel with me back to the underground house church scene I described in chapter 1. Well, you have to read chapter 1 to understand that. On my first day with these believers, they simply asked me to lead a Bible study. Please meet us tomorrow at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. So I put some thoughts together for a short Bible study and went to the designated location where about 20 house church leaders were waiting. I don't remember when we started, but I do remember that eight hours later we were still going strong. We would study one passage and then they would ask about another. This would lead to another topic, then to another, and by the end of the day, our conversations had ranged from dreams and visions to tongues and the Trinity. It was late in the evening, and they wanted to continue studying, but they needed to get back to their homes. So they asked the two main church leaders and me, can we meet again tomorrow? I said, I would be glad to. Shall we meet at the same time? They responded, no. We want to start early in the morning. I said, okay, how long would you like to study? They replied, all day. Thus began a process in which over the next 10 days, for 8 to 12 hours a day, we would gather to study God's word. 
listen to these next three words. They were hungry. In the American church today, sadly, we're not hungry. And I don't know why. Is it because we think we know it all? If, uh, if someone were to say, well, you know, I've heard all these truths before. My question to you is, are you doing them? Are you listening to them? Because what I see going on in the Christian community at large does not reflect what I see the Bible teaching. I see people satisfied to be saved, but I don't see what you would call a whole lot of sanctification. I don't see a whole lot of conformity to the image of Christ. Um, Could it be that we don't care? That... We're indifferent. We have such ease to get the Word of God. I can turn on my radio and I can hear good, sound, Bible-preaching pastors who are going to present the Word very truthfully and with power. And it's a wonderful experience. I can pick up my Bible anytime I want. I can even get it now on my phone. I can hit the buttons on my phone and and... I can see the the Bible verse or I carry my little Kindle or my Nook so I can get free coffee at Barnes & Noble like Isaac does. Um, I can carry my iPad. uh, And if I don't bring my Bible, ah, they got them at church. They're they're in the pew. I can just grab that and I can flip through and I, I can find that. Is it because we have such easy access? I don't know what the reason is, but here's what I do know. When we complain, and, and by the way, folks, th- I'm, I'm not speaking about us. Well, I guess to a degree I am. But I, I'm talking about the church in general because of the things that I hear out there. If, if a service, if the preacher goes for 45 minutes, I'm never going back to that church again. He made us... Wait a minute. If it's the truth, what are you avoiding? What is so important that you can't go 45 minutes or an hour? What, what is it? Well, we're going to meet some people for dinner. Meet them on Saturday. Um, the game is on. Well, I can't go down that road. Uh, I guess maybe the best solution or, or the best answer to this is I don't think we're hungry. I'm, I'm just telling you what I think. I, I may be wrong, but I think the bottom line is we're not hungry. By the way, I only read a brief portion of what he tells. As he goes on, this whole issue gets bigger and bigger because now their lives are in danger. They have to bring him clandestinely to speak. Um, they understand that they are letting their crops in the fields go because it's more important that they, feel their, uh, that they feed their souls and their spirits than that their crops grow. 
And if a preacher today goes 15 minutes past the end of ending time, he, people aren't going to come back. They're, they're, they're going to leave. I've watched them do it. Because they're not hungry. Paul was consumed with the need to proclaim the truth. People get bombarded all week long with lies. Even from some so-called Christians as camping. And I believe he is a Christian. I I don't doubt that, but he's misguided. Um, we, We hear lies at work. We're introduced to immoral concepts, immoral thoughts. We're confronted with jokes and stories that are dishonoring to the Lord. We hear people cursing our Savior. And we come to church where there's a place of respite and there's an island of peace. But we've got to get out of here at 12 o'clock. Oh, boy. It's already past 12. The seventh principle and the final one. He was an instrument that God could use. Listen, this situation with Tychicus, I'm going to just summarize this. Tychicus fell from the roof. Paul, Eutychus, what did I say? I'm sorry. I'm, I'm think, I'm, forget it. Eutychus, he was a cousin to Tychicus. <laughs> um. He's lying there dead, and Paul is involved in raising him. A unique situation. I've been told that there are preachers today who are close to raising the dead. Don't believe it. It's a unique situation. God, on several occasions, with Elijah and the widow's son, with Elisha and the Shunammite's son, here... You have the situation with Eutychus. And God used these men in a mighty way. But here's the bottom line. God will use all of his people in different ways, but for the glory of his own name. And a good leader is going to be a person that allows God to use him, and that can be you. Here I am, Lord, use me. That's what makes a good leader. I would be remiss today if I said, let's stand and pray without this invitation. Paul was teaching about a Savior. He was talking about the one who paid the full price for our sins that a holy, righteous God demands and completely took care of the punishment that you and I deserve, and we deserve to be cast into hell forever. But it's because of the grace of God in the sacrifice of Christ through His death, and ultimately then through His resurrection, that the Father looks down and He says to those who will, by faith, put their trust in Christ, please listen. You don't ask Jesus into your life. 
He is not a partner. He is a savior. You don't ask Jesus into your heart. Because the only passage that deals with that is a passage that's already talking to believers who are asked to allow Christ to be the centerpiece of their lives. Let me come into every area of your life. Another way that the, the Lord or that the Apostle Paul put it, he said that Christ may dwell within you. That's what Revelation is talking about. What we're talking about is this. I am a sinner, I'm on my way to hell, and if I don't trust Jesus Christ as my Savior, that's exactly where I'm going to go. But if I trust in that sacrifice of Christ, and I rest in what He did for me at the cross of Calvary, my sins are forgiven, I am granted the righteousness equal to that of Christ, and that's why the Father can allow me into His presence. And you have to accept Christ. There is no special prayer to pray. We talk about a sinner's prayer. The Bible never talks about a sinner's prayer. But the Bible does talk about repenting, turning away from our sin, turning to Jesus and saying this, You are my only hope. I believe you died for my sins. I trust you as my Savior. That's it. And if you call upon the name of the Lord today, He will save you. Let's stand. Father, what, what a challenge lies before us when we consider that you've called your people to be leaders, but not in the word, world's terms, but in your terms. Leading with humility, leading by example, leading by the things that we do that are consistent with the virtues that we find in the person of Christ. Whether it's in the home, in the neighborhood, in the workplace, or in the church, raise up leaders that will conform to your purpose and draw the lost to yourself for the glory of Jesus Christ in whose name we pray, amen.